I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Iyad al-Baghdadi rose to prominence in the aftermath of the Arab revolutions of 2011 before being forcibly exiled from his country in April 2014. Iyad spoke to us in series one about his life in hiding in Norway. He continues his work as an analyst and an activist relating to issues of freedom and democracy in the Middle East as president of the Kawakabi Center. Iyad al-Baghdadi, welcome to Doomsday Watch. Thank you. Iyad, what I'm very interested to talk about is the impact on the Middle East of this conflict. One of the things that we saw uh, right at the beginning was an attempt by Western leaders to get uh, the Saudi and Emirati leadership to help them out on the energy side of things, to pump more oil, to try and bring the price of oil down. Now, when we last spoke, we spoke about the geopolitical stance of the Saudis in particular. So what's your take on what's happened there? It seems that the Saudis have uh, sought basically to give a cold shoulder to both Joe Biden and to Boris Johnson. What do you think is going on? Well, the the writing was on the wall several months ago. So one of the things that my team does is that we analyze disinformation. And sometimes from the disinformation footprint, you can say, we can predict um, the stance that uh, a certain government is going to take in the future. Because they kind of, uh, especially someone who is as undisciplined as Mohammed bin Salman, who and someone who has such direct control of his propaganda uh, engine, as early as December of last year, we could see almost consistent messages praising Putin and this and and adopting the Russian view because if you remember the the tensions with Ukraine did not only start in February they started last year and we said that if this happens MBS is going to take Putin's side and we cited three things we cited first of all it's almost a re- revenge because MBS feels like the Western powers have snubbed him and humiliated him and kind of excum- excommunicated him. And so he's kind of getting back at them. The second is economic leverage, which he can also uh, leverage politically to kind of force uh, the world to embrace him or re-embrace him. Third is really something really interesting, which is that he actually likes Putin. I mean, we, we should not forget this. He actually has a personal liking of Putin. And in some cases, he's even mod- modeling himself after him. There's that kind of bromance situation, which we can all remember going back to that uh, opening match of the Football World Cup, where Putin and MBS were sitting together in the stadium. One of the things, though, that is is perhaps harder to understand is it's easy to see the level of perhaps personal affront that MBS feels that, you know, he's he's been unfairly treated. Of course, you know, people who think about the terrible murder of Hashogji or the, the ghastly war in Yemen w- would question whether it's unfair, but from his perspective. But it's harder to see the strategic interest for Saudi. And of course, 
as you know better than than most, Ian, uh, for years, Gulf countries have depended on America and other Western powers for certain security relationships. I won't call them guarantees, but certain security relationships. Is it that the Saudis have decided that they can rely on Russia for these relationships now? Well, well, not so much. I mean, there's two there's there's two dimensions to this. The first is that I don't think that the UAE and Saudi Arabia, particularly, of course, in this case, Saudi Arabia, I don't think they actually doubt the West's, especially America's, commitment to them. They're still sending them weapons. You know, they're still committed to their defense versus such threats as uh, Iranian proxies, such as the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, so I don't think they actually doubt that. It's just that there is another angle that we have to kind of understand. And for this, we'll have to bring in Assad's recent visit to public visit to, to the United Arab Emirates. Yeah, I know this is kind of uncomfortable, but we have to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of uh, an Arab dictator. Yes. Uh, witnessing 2011. And look at the models. I mean, if you were uh, an Arab dictator and you saw what happened to Gaddafi, you saw what happened to Mubarak. You saw what happened to Saleh of Yemen. Yes. And then you saw what happened to Assad. It looks like Assad is a role model. He managed to survive. But then what did it take for Assad to survive? Mohammed bin Salman, for example, he can have that security guarantee of the, from the United States, but the United States is not going to slaughter civilians for him to hold power. No. And of course, I'm not defending uh, US policy or, or British policy, and my, my stance on that is clear. But then we have to acknowledge that there's a huge difference from what Russia is willing to do and what it actually delivered to, to Bashar al-Assad versus what America is willing to do. Isn't it fair to say that the Americans have been willing to do that for the Saudis? I mean, the first Gulf War, the, the endless supplies of weapons, counterterrorism support um, in, in the period after 9-11. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not here to sort of say you're being unfair to America, but to some extent, America has put incredible resources into keeping Saudi Arabia secure. Yeah, so so uh, just to clarify what I mean here is that America is not going to defend MBS's regime against uh, a popular uprising, right. uh, especially one that threatens him to the point that he has to actually go take the Assad route, the Assad option. If yeah. there is a significant uprising within Saudi Arabia, and many people, when I mention this, they're almost shocked. They're like, do you think that something like this is even possible in Saudi Arabia? And I just remind them that it seemed impossible in Syria and it seemed impossible in Libya. Yes. Uh, but then it happened. You know, it's, it, seemed, it seems impossible until it happens. And, you know, he's thinking about his survival to the point that he has to level cities. He has to raise neighborhoods. He has to drop bombs and, you know, on, on, on his own people. Yeah. Uh, I think the level of commitment that he's going to see from, you know, the United States will probably be calling for calm or calling for negotiations, etc. Yeah. While it's the Russians who will say, yeah, we'll give you whatever you need. We'll even send you our advisors and we'll help you. We'll help you, you know, crush your own people. Yes. In, in that context, they're going to need uh, Putin. They're going to need Wagner, his his mercenaries. They might yeah. even need Chinese, you know, Chinese assistance, military assistance, etc. I don't think Ch the Chinese will ever send troops. No. Um, but this is one angle of this. The second angle, however, is also interesting, which is that, I mean, you started the question by saying it's hard to see the strategic sense. And to be honest, frankly, from everything that we're seeing, it seems to us that this is not, for, for MBS at least, this is not about strategy. This is about someone with fragile ego who feels snubbed and who feels that he is ecstatic, that he is now in a position where he can cause pain to those who snubbed him. Yeah. And I think if we look at his wider behavior, 
I've always felt strongly, you know, among the kind of Western former officials and, and analysts, many of whom have decided that they think that MBS is a sort of transformational leader. I've always felt very strongly that they've massively overestimated him. It seems to me that a lot of what he does is based on very kind of personal, visceral reactions. You know, his his treatment of Qatar, his kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister. These are all things that don't make much sense from a kind of strategic perspective, but make sense from the perspective of someone who has untrammeled power and and gets angry, basically. Yeah, and he seems to be very undisciplined in a way that it's easy to get a rise out of him. Yeah, uh, All of this is contributing to this picture where, I mean, I, I hope that the situation right now that we're seeing with Putin and Ukraine, because we're seeing something like that with Putin, because Putin also has absolute control of Russia for a long time, but now it's kind of morphing from kind of an authoritarianism to even a totalitarianism. Yes. Uh, and we're seeing this happen before our eyes. And I think that all of those theories about engaging dictators through trade, engaging them through through dialogue, trying to reform them through, by engaging them and including them, I think all of these are, are, are crashing. And I think uh, I hope that uh, that the world, especially Europe, is able to make the connection between Putin and MBS. Yeah. Well, it's certainly if we look at uh, let's take three three important countries, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, all of those countries, Western powers have engaged with trade and they've told themselves that, that democracy follows free, free trade and business connections. And, uh, you know, in both all of those countries have become more authoritarian, more totalitarian, less free. Um, I wanted to go on here to talk about, well, what are the implications for Saudi Arabia? We've got this situation where the Saudis are, are not willing to pump more oil, so oil prices will be higher. That they're basically giving giving the Russians a bit of a free pass on that. Uh, Saudi Arabia will therefore have a couple of fat years, probably, of, of, of high oil prices after some very lean years economically, which, again, I know we've talked about in the past. But what do you see as the long-term sort of implications of this kind of realignment in Saudi's behavior? It is no longer that reliable swing producer of global energy that that will will basically act according to uh, the interests of the US and other Western powers. Well, also in the interest of itself, keep in mind. Yes. This is, I think, the most important question to ask. And I think it also demonstrates there isn't a lot of long-term thinking here. I mean, it's kind of uh, his, his actions so, so far seem to privilege uh, short-term thinking, short-term wins versus something which is actually dangerous for him, you know, for even for his grip on power on the yep. long term. Um, and, and there's a lot to talk about. First of all is the, the, the final point that you mentioned, which is this perception that Saudi Arabia was a reliable partner, uh, which has always been the case, you know, uh, for a very long time. I mean, since since the 1930s with the establishment of, uh, of Saudi Arabia and this close relationship that is, it's, it's had since then with, with, with Britain and with the United States. Uh, so this is a relationship that seemed to be one of trust and partnership an yes. institutional relationship. And now it is morphing from that into a transactional relationship, uh, a give and take relationship, which is, of course, dangerous long term, because you kind of step back from a key alliance that you're actually dependent upon, because you cannot, you know, let's face it, you know, the Saudi army cannot, cannot even vanquish ragtag, uh, you know, militias in Yemen, yeah. I don't think it's going to fare very well against a professional army like Iran's. 
no. uh, you know, if, if it comes to that. So it does need Western security guarantees. So that's that's one thing, which is, you know, where is this relationship going? The second, I think it's related, is that I think MBS does not really read how much resentment is being engendered when in Europe's darkest hour, in its moment of need, he is price gouging. This yeah. resentment is going to, to remain for a long time. And I think he doesn't, I don't think he really completely appreciates it. I don't think he appreciates just how poignant this moment is for European history, a, con- a continent that broke itself apart twice in two world wars, 100 million people dead. Uh, many of these incidents are still in living memory, uh, shaped our world as we know it, shaped Europe as we know it. And now war is back in Europe. Uh, and I don't think he appreciates that or understands it. I think a third factor to consider also is that by withholding oil and you know raising the price of oil, of course he's making money as you as you mentioned for for a year or two. But then this is coming at a time when we're already talking about a transition from fossil fuels. We're also we're already talking about we have to go green. So this is actually going to accelerate our shift, our deepen investments into renewables, which would actually, of course, I mean uh, this was going to happen anyway. But I guess his own actions is actually giving many countries, especially European countries, that were already on this on this path, to kind of deepen their investment and and, and hasten the transition away from oil, which which is actually bad for him. Uh, the fact that he is refusing to pump oil has actually changed America's calculus vis-a-vis uh, his own adversaries. We're talking Qatar, which is now basically doing the opposite, is actually saying that hey, we're not going to use. Uh, the West in its hour of need, and we're going to stabilize demand as much as possible. It's even signed a new agreement with Germany for export of LNG. So he's actually furthering Qatar's integration with with the West as he is, you know, severing his own or harming his own. It's not really severed yet. Uh, at the same time, it's also going into America's calculus as it negotiates the the Iran deal. Uh, You know, like there is a rush here to like, let's get as much oil onto the market as possible. And of course, America doesn't exactly, it's not going to be buying Iranian oil, but it needs that supply to enter the market to stabilize prices. So in a way, he's actually accelerating the very one thing that he doesn't want. And speaking of possible miscalculations by MBS, we know that for months now, America has been in quiet diplomatic negotiations with Iran over the nuclear file. But that could result in Iran's re-entry into the global energy market. So in your view, what impact would that have on the regional picture? Yeah, so the, the complication with this question really is that uh, withdrawing from the Middle East seems to be a long-term American priority. It did not start with Biden. It did not start with Trump. In fact, I would argue it started with Obama, who tried to kind of create this disengagement between the United States and uh, its Middle East commitments and ending the Middle East and the, the, the wars in the Middle East or America's involvement in these wars, sorry, and try to pivot the so-called pivot to Asia. And so uh, the, the, those American allies in the region, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, etc. Uh, from their own points of, points of view, they have good reason to oppose normalization of Iran because, uh, you know, let's face it, Iran is a power. It's, uh, it's a demographic power. It's an economic power. It's a military power. And it is unfriendly. And their conduct towards it uh, in the last few decades has not really inspired confidence, which means that there is no, I don't see a chance for this kind of regional accommodation. I don't think that's going to happen. 
so they had been trying for a very long time to use their leverage against the United States to make sure that Iran is not reintegrated. Uh, from America's point of view, it's not really about in- integrating Iran into anything. It's more about being able to withdraw so that it can be committed elsewhere, where it is more geopolitically uh, important for America. Interesting thing here is that the Iranian regime has become much darker. Uh, it is darker today than it was in 2014 or 2015. The character of the regime, especially after the Trump years, has become more radical. We've seen this, for example, with their continued attacks on Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, with the recent attack, for example, on, I, I believe it was an American consulate in northern Iraq. This is happening at the same time as Iran is actually negotiating the deal. I don't claim to be an expert on how the Iranians think. There there are people who can give you a far more informed uh, opinion on this. But it seems to me that this is going to be different. And even if there is an Iran nuclear deal, America is not really going to normalize. It's not going to become a close country to Iran. It's simply going to say, you know what, this this serves our own national interests. uh, And Iranian oil can now flow. And this is going to be good for the oil market. But other than that, uh, you know, long term, America is leaving the region whether MBS and MBZ and and Israel likes it or not. Iyad, one of the things we need to talk about, I think, is wheat prices. As has been widely reported, Ukraine and Russia supply the majority of the wheat consumed in countries like Egypt. Of course, this conflict has pushed prices way up. And that takes us back to the Arab Spring. And of course, at that time, it was also the case that there was a spike in food prices that was one of the factors that that went into those events. So what are going to be the ramifications for that in terms of unrest across the region? Yeah, so uh, we could look back to 2010, 2011, but we could also look much closer to 2018, 2019. Uh, There is a revolutionary movement going on right now as we speak in Sudan. And Sudan's uprising in 2018, uh, that started as a breadline riot, you know, against, uh, you know, rising bread prices and inflation. And again, these are the same thing, because keep in mind, even like in 2011, one of the main slogans of the Arab Spring uprisings back then was bread, equality, dignity. Bread riots are only about bread for the first few hours. In the end, they don't become just about bread. It's about the corruption. It's about the mismanagement. It's about the lack of dignity and the daily humiliation that that citizens feel. So very quickly, especially if there is repression, and you can, and, and as you know, in this region, there's a lot of repression, they can very quickly spiral out of control. In the case of Egypt, I'm kind of following what they've been doing the last few days. Uh, so for example, Egypt sold a significant share in some of its own national industries to the United Arab Emirates recently. They've also uh, initiated renewed talks with the IMF for for another loan. Uh, From everything that I'm seeing, it seems to me that they're able to maintain control uh, and, you know, like make things go by, you know, get get by for for another year or so. But if this crisis proves to be long term and prolonged, maybe 2022 will, will be, you know, they'll be safe. But as we hit 2023, maybe even beyond it's going to be very, very difficult uh, for, for them to, to maintain, you know, that semblance of normalcy anymore. In fact, uh, I think just it, it was just yesterday that uh, a friend of mine, my, my partner and co-writer, Ahmed Gatnash, uh, was at a roundtable in London uh, where uh, a number of Arab uh, experts from 
multiple countries from the region, almost all of them agreed instability is coming. Is there a risk of domino effects here? You've got a very unsettled region and a lot of very poor relations between individual countries within the Middle East region. Yeah, so I think the regional map, the political map uh, in uh, 2022 is very, very different from what it was in uh, in 2010 or 20, uh, 2011. If something like this happens, and you know I, we still don't know if it will happen, but if it happens, it's going to be round three, not round two. I mean, we kind of ignore the round of uprisings that actually happened between 2018 and 2019. Uh, we've seen uprisings in, in, in Iraq. Uh, we've seen renewed uprisings in Iran the powerful protest movement in Jordan, we've seen it in Lebanon, we've seen a change of government, a successful revolution in Sudan and in Algeria. So that was round two. So like round two already happened. It was just interrupted by COVID. And so what what will the next wave look like? It's kind of, it's really difficult to imagine. But what I can say is that um, we're going to be in a similar situation or maybe an even more dangerous situation because Just like last time, the political opposition is gutted. There is no credible or united political opposition. And we can expect massive repression. There is a reason why we called our book The Middle East Crisis Factory. Uh, I mean, when a region is dominated by dictators and by dictatorships and authoritarian systems and regimes, it will always be a crisis factory. I might remind that Europe itself was once a crisis factory when we were living in the age of Hitler's and Mussolini's. Uh, this is the way that they function. So it, I don't think it is not an essence of the region, so to speak, but it is really an essence of these kind of regimes, which eventually are are always afraid of their own people. They're always looking for allies to help them vanquish their, you know, and and maintain internal control. Uh, they're always looking for ways to preserve their uh, their fiefdom because the regime is also always falling from one crisis to the next and always being bailed out, always requiring bailout. This region will only say peace if we complete the project that we started in 2011. It might take us, uh, you know, a decade more, maybe a two decades more, maybe even more. But we're we're only going to see a sustainable peace when we have democratic governments. So, what what do you think that we should be doing in the coming months as this situation uh, continues to unfold? Uh, so, the the proposal that we adopt in our book is that. It's not enough to simply constrain and sanction dictators. Ultimately, the only group that can actually check a dictator and end his power for good is his own people. So if we are conducting ourselves in a way which sanctions and, 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 you know, and constrains and isolates the country, most of the time the people in power are going to be fine. I'm not saying that we should not sanction dictators. I'm saying that it's not enough. We have to actually realize that dictators or or dictatorships are different from the societies that they brutalize and subjugate. So there needs to be a dual policy here. There has to be a policy where we are trying as much as possible to constrain and isolate and delegitimize the regime, but also strengthen and reach out to uh, the society that is under this regime. And I, I think it's always useful to keep uh, to keep the door open to talks. We should not uh, underestimate just how much how brutal a cornered dictatorship can become. And uh, having an avenue for talks, even though even if we actually don't believe that Putin is ever going to like listen, I think it's always important to keep diplomacy on the table. Is what I'm saying. Uh, 
how this ends, it's a, it's a, it's it just looks dark either way because uh, it seems that Putin doesn't have a path to victory, uh, and even if he somehow subdues all of Ukraine, which he doesn't seem able to do, even if he does, he's going to face an insurgency for many many years. And so, in this kind of situation of impasse, we're going to see a, a prolonged war, unfortunately, and uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be very grueling for the Ukrainians. But I think it's also going to be very tough for Russia, and Russia, I think, is going to come out on the other side a very very changed country. I'll, I'll just leave you with this thought: the last two times uh, the Russian state collapsed, uh, or a Russia-centered state collapsed, the first time. Tsarist Russia, you know, the Russian Empire, and the second time the USSR, both of these were preceded by the humiliation, the national humiliation of military defeat. And uh, unfortunately, this doesn't bite very well for Russia now because it doesn't seem to be a path to victory. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.